seems to a lot of people like, you know, we how, raise your hand if you uh, have a New Year's resolution or two or three or four. Some of us create a whole bunch of them. How many of you have already broken those New Year resolutions? Because we put things into place and we decide not to take action or we don't start taking action soon enough and, and we break those resolutions pretty quick. And so I want us to think about 2018 and how we as a Jesus community will organize our lives together. And that's what this sermon series is about. I want us to organize our lives in a way that we can expect great things in 2018. Not just good things, but expect great things. But here's the thing about expectation. We have a job to do also. When we have expectations that have something to do with us, we have a role to play in that. So you can set your goals and make your resolutions, but if there is an action that you can take and you can't figure out a way to start taking that action, the expectation will fall short and you will fall short, just like when I was talking about the little punching bag thing. Like there is a goal that we're going for, and to miss it is to miss it, and we don't want to miss this. So in 2018, we are going to expect great things. I have a whole thing that I want to say to you also about how great it is that I moved to Las Cruces so that the Aggies could win their first bowl game and how that they should make a movie about that and have somebody that's really, really good looking play my part in it, like Brad Pitt or somebody like that. But um, I'll, I'll do that later. I'll, I'll, I'll do that at the next service. I won't talk about that here. So we're going to be going through Mark, the majority of chapter 14 this morning. This is a different way of preaching for me. It's not a different way of preaching for me. It's a different way of you hearing me preach. And so this is what is called an exegetical sermon. I'm going to go through the text and stop and do some teaching and then go through it a little bit more and stop and do some teaching. And at the end, kind of pull it all together to make the main point that I want you to hear this morning. Okay. So bear with me as we go through this long, uh, long reading together. It's going to be Mark chapter 14, starting with verse Three actually it says 10 but we're going to start actually with verse 3 and we're going to go all the way through verse 31 so if you have your bible grab it grab a pen a pencil whatever out of the seat back in front of you if you want to take some notes write in your bible you know it's just a book like you can write in it and leave those notes for somebody in the future uh grab your your smartphone find your your uh bible app whatever it is that you use so that you can follow along with this in this i read uh, from the New Revised Standard Version. There are two uh, interpretations of the scripture that I really like. I like the NRSV. Um, it's the most academic version of scripture. And then I like the Common English Bible, which is an academic translation also. There are some others that sound like Common English, and they're paraphrases. It's somebody's, somebody's kind of thoughts about what might be said there. But the, I, I prefer a translation over a paraphrase. And I like the New Revised Standard Version, and I like the Common English Bible. So if you want to read along with the version that I read along with, most of the time it's going to be NRSV. Sometimes it'll be CEB, so just for your information. But any Bible that you like to read is the Bible you should read. Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 3. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he sat at the table. We're going to stop there first. So, Bethany is a place, Mark wants us to know that this particular place is where Jesus was. I don't have a lot to say about that. But I want you to know that Jesus was with Simon the leper. 
And in Jewish, in the Jewish world of that time, they had codes set up, purity codes and purity laws about what you could and couldn't do or should and shouldn't do. And it wasn't just about like having a rule in place so that you could like, if you break this rule, then you don't go to heaven. We think, we always want to say that that's what it was about. I want to say this to you pretty clearly. I think that God loves everyone. And I think that all people are offered into the, are brought into the kingdom of God in the end in some form or fashion. C.S. Lewis says that we will be super surprised at the people that we see in heaven. And I think it's a problem if we start trying to decide who's in and who's out. In fact, I think that when you draw a line in the sand and you say those people are out and we're in, the other, the opposite of that is true. Because the kingdom of God is all encompassing and all people are welcome in it. But they had these purity codes, and it was basically a health code. So, you know, uh, there are certain skin diseases and certain skin ailments that are a big problem, and they're very contagious. And so they had rules set up about you couldn't go and be with a leper. You couldn't touch a leper. You, really, you could only get so close to a leper. And the sad part of that is they misunderstood some of the things. They didn't quite understand what leprosy really was. And there were a whole host of diseases that were called leprosy, by the way. But that's a little bit beside the point. Jesus was in the house of a leper. It wasn't just that he was conversing with a leper at arm's length. He was in the house of someone who was ritually unclean, was not allowed to come into the community of God-fearing people because of something that was outside of his control. And Jesus was in that person's house. But it's not just that he was in that person's house, which was a big deal to begin with. He was sitting at the table with this person, sharing a meal. When Michelle and I lived in Denver, um, I went to an Ethiopian restaurant several times. And this particular restaurant, the owner of the place would tell me the times that I went there how eating a meal in Ethiopia worked. And I want to tell you in the most New Mexico way I can to help you understand. Well, first off, has anybody ever been to an Ethiopian restaurant? A few of us have. So when you sit down to eat, it's the same thing. They give you a menu and you order, but when they bring your food out, they put it on top of a giant tortilla. That's what I'm going to call it because you'll understand tortilla. They put it on top of a giant tortilla that's a little bit more bread-like than tortillas are typically. It's a little bit spongier. It can kind of soak up the the gravy, and then what you order is similar to guisado of some sort. It's like meat with some gravy and spices and potatoes and onions and tomatoes and maybe some green leafy vegetables that you don't know what it is and maybe you don't want to know, like maybe it's pumpkin leaves or something. And, and so, but it's delicious. And the way you eat, they don't give you utensils, so there's no fork, there's no spoon, there's nothing like that. So if you're a clean freak, you should definitely go try this because it might break that thing you have. And you tear off a piece of the tortilla and you lay it on top of the food and then you just grab it to keep your fingers clean. You use, keep the bread between your fingers and the food and you grab it and then you eat it with your hands. It's awesome. But the owner of the restaurant would always come over to me or the times I was there came over to me and would say, well, if we were in Ethiopia right now, this is how it would work. We're a patriarchal society and so... Um, the men of the house would host one another and one another's families. And so let's say that the Stubbs come to my house for dinner 
And because it's a patriarchal society, I'm hosting them, and, but really the way it would work is that Michelle would be the host, but I would get the credit, which is unfortunately probably somewhat true even in our culture and society now. And I'll just be honest, probably in our house now. And so... Um, <laughs> And so uh, Michael and I would be sitting next to each other, and to show him that I honor him, I want to serve him as the host. And so I would tear off a piece of the bread, and I would pick up the food, and Michael would open his mouth, and I would feed him. Amazing, right? Everybody's looking forward to coming and having that meal at my house now. On the 25th. On the 25th, yeah, on the 25th. But the thing is, it shows respect on both sides in that culture because for me, to feed Michael is to say, I'm here to serve you. And I trust you enough to put my fingers in your mouth because you could chomp down. And, and I trust you enough to know that this is an okay situation. And on the flip side of it, there's a level of respect that is shown also because Michael is saying, I trust you, that you're going to feed me food that is safe and that you're going to feed me food that is good, and that you are going to make me feel comfortable and welcome in your place. Jesus lived in a culture that was more like that than ours. And he was in the house of a leper, having an intimate meal with someone. On the 25th, if you come to my house... I'm welcoming you into my place that I feel the safest in all of Las Cruces. The place where when I have a bad day, I can go there and know that my people will huddle around me and feel I will feel safe there. It's kind of intimate, right? For you to come to my house. But at the same time, you're risking a little also by coming to my house because you don't know if I'm going to serve you, if I'm going to make you feel comfortable, if I'm going to kind of try to keep you at arm's length, even though you're in my place. And so there is still in our culture an intimacy to having a meal together in one another's places. But think about what was happening. Jesus was having an extremely intimate meal with a leper. A woman came with an alabaster jar a very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, Why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's worth wages for a common laborer. 300 Days worth of work is what this was worth. It could have been sold. And what would they have done with the money? The money given to the poor. I agree with them. And I have to say, right now, I've been using Sean for the example of the last two sermons, I might as well continue. If Sean had a $300, bottle of do- $300 bottle of cologne, first off, I don't know that we could be friends. If I had a $300 bottle of cologne, I don't think he would want to be my friend either. But here's the thing. What if he took that $300 bottle of cologne and came and just poured it on Pete Tyranny? Put aside the smell. 
<laughs> think about the money. That it could be used probably 300 times, right? A dollar a day. But it, all at once, it's just poor and it's gone. That's it. it it's a one-time use sort of thing. I hope that everybody in this room, with the exception of the two of them, would be upset about it. For the same reason that those people in Simon the leper's house were upset. Because what could we do with that? Sean could have sold it. If he was just going to waste it, just sell it. Sell it and get $300 for it. And we can give it to the youth group for their mission trip. Or we can, we can use the $300 to put into the general fund. Or we can give it to the missions committee. Or we could use it to get the Rawson to finally put the doors on the, on the porch out here. If you know anybody at Rawson, tell them we need our doors. I would hope that you would be frustrated about that. But listen to what Jesus says about it. He says, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. Semicolon. End of thought. What's he saying? Is he saying, I'm one of the poor, and she's performed a good service for me. And listen, friends, you are so good that you always have the poor with you. Serve them however you wish. Don't judge one another for how you're serving the poor. The thing is, always have them with you and always serve. That's one interpretation. And I think it's a good one. But I also like, he goes on and says, but you will not, not always have me. He adds a thought, an addendum to the original thought. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. She recognized that she was anointing a king. She had been listening and watching to what Jesus was doing, and she got it. She understood that he was the Messiah, and she understood that the Messiah had a job, which was to bring peace in the kingdom, and to bring the kingdom of God to be at hand, and to get the Roman Empire to fall to the side, and get the people to live as a city on a hill. She recognized Jesus as the Messiah, as the king, and she anointed him as king. But she also understood that there was something going on about his death, and he recognized that she recognized that, and he said, look, she's anointed me, and she's anointed my body and prepared it for its burial even before my death. She's done what she could do. She gets it. And wherever the good news is proclaimed, people are going to be talking about this woman because she gave sacrificially. And she recognized what was happening around her. She was a prophet of sorts. But Mark moves fast. The thing about the Gospel of Mark is he doesn't linger too long on one thing, but he'll use one story to help us understand another story, to help us other, understand another story, and it just builds these layers. And so watch what Mark does next. He jumps into this. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, 
they were greatly pleased. They, at this time being the chief priests, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him what? Money. Promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. If you've been around Christianity very long, you know Judas is typically painted as the bad guy. I want to offer another way of thinking about Judas. Judas was misguided. Judas understood the Messiah part, but he didn't understand the kingdom part. Judas was probably more like me than I would like to admit. Judas wanted things to happen and wanted them to happen quickly, and Judas was not a very patient person. And so Judas was sick and tired of all of the talk and all of the stuff. And Jesus just kind of slowly and methodically and and probably very intentionally moving forward in the way that he was going to initiate this new kingdom and fulfill his purpose on earth. He was tired of that. And he recognized after this anointing, okay, other people are seeing it also. This is the guy. So I'm going to covertly go meet with the people who are covertly hunting Jesus and I'm going to make sure that this thing gets started. That this overthrowing of the Roman Empire and this breaking of the back of the way that the chief priests are partnering with the Roman Empire is done. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to betray him, but really what I'm going to do is I'm going to collect some money and in the process I'm going to get this thing going. And who knows what he was going to do with the money. We're not told that he was going to put it in his pocket. We're not told maybe he was going to give it to the fighters who were going to be fighting with and for Jesus. We don't know. But I, I don't want us to be so quick to paint Judas as the other guy when it's likely he's more like us than we ever would really want to admit. Even if he is the other guy, we'll do a lot of weird things for money. Mark quickly moves on. So he drops that in there. He's painting a picture of this community is underground. There's covert operations taking place. Jesus is kind of in hiding. There's this thing that happened. There's some money. Jesus has again told us, like, like let us glimpse into the future, foretelling, like, hey, there's going to be a death. And then we hear about Judas setting all of that up more and more covert things happening. And then on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the city and a man carrying water, a jar of water, will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. This is more covert stuff happening. This is like a plot of a spy movie almost. So here's the thing. Jerusalem was packed full of people. It was Passover. It was this huge, huge festival and celebration that would culminate in the eating of the Passover meal when Jewish people of the time and even now, like it's a big, big deal. It's a huge thing. And everybody that could make it to Jerusalem was in Jerusalem. Men didn't carry water jars. 
women carried water jars. But something had happened. Somebody had set something up ahead of time where Jesus says to these two particular disciples, go into the city and watch for a guy, a man carrying a water jar. It would stand out to anybody who was watching, but the city was so full that it might have slipped past people who weren't watching for that, or they might see it and think, like, what's up with that guy carrying water? But these two people were looking particularly for him, and when they saw him, they greeted him, and they followed him. He was the runner. They followed him to a particular place that whoever had set all this up had set up beforehand. They walk in, they say to the owner of the place, where are we supposed to have this Passover meal? And he takes them and shows them that all the furnishings are there. And then Jesus said, once you see that, start preparing the meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their places and were eating. There's that eating thing again. Intimate time with friends. Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. How much would that hurt? To have your 12 closest friends with you, the 12 people that you've experienced literally resurrection of the dead with, because remember Lazarus was raised from the dead, seeing people healed, being chased around the countryside, seeing all kinds of crazy confrontations, the way it bonds you together, what if, what if those 12 people you invited to come to your house and one of them had already sold you out? Literally. How much would that hurt? And they became distressed and to say to him, one after the other, surely it's not I. And he said to them, it is one of the 12. One who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one to not have been born. That one is all twelve. We want to say that it's Judas because we already know Judas has betrayed him. But Mark is tricky in the way that Mark writes. He'll, he'll put something out there and then all of a sudden bring something in from the backside. And whap, you get hit with it and realize like, oh, I was missing the point altogether. Because watch what happens. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and, the, and, and all of them drank from it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Did you notice something that Mark left out there that we always say at communion? I always say, this is my body broken for you. What's the next line? Do this in remembrance. Mark is not so concerned about remembering Mark is concerned about this event pushing people forward into a new way of living and a new way of thinking. We can sit at communion, at the communion table, we can come and receive it and do all the remembering we want, but if the remembering doesn't push us forward, what's the point in it? All that is, is like having expectations with no action. Mark doesn't care so much about that 
if it's not going to push people forward because he's constantly about forward motion, even in the way he writes. When they had sung the hymn, the benediction, they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters. So it's not just the one that it would have been better for them to have never been born all of them will feel that way. It's not a condemnation. It's not a judgment. It's a reality situation. Have you ever had that feeling? Where you do something and you regret it so much that you can hardly stand it. I've talked about the feeling before of trying to rewind the tape. Like, you do the thing and you're like, I cannot believe that I just did that. I wish I could hit pause, rewind, and change the script and never, ever have done that. That's like deep deep regret, where the point that you almost wish you had never been born so that you would not hurt someone in that way, that's what Jesus is saying. What has happened is you have, all of you, have fallen into the trap that the Pharisees set and that they've fallen into that is set by who knows what. And this is what Ched Myers, my favorite scholar of the book of Mark, Ched, not Chad, Ched, C-H-E-D, Go out, buy a book. If you're interested in reading a scholarly book on the book of Mark, it's called Binding the Strong Man. It is an amazing, amazing reading and understanding of Mark. But Ched Meyer says that in the book of Mark, Mark lets us know, lets the readers know, that the real enemy of Jesus is what we would call radical biblical literalists. People who believe the Bible in a radically literal way. You've heard the saying, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. That is a radical, biblical literalist. There's no room for interpretation. There's no room for experience. There's no room for tradition. There's none of that. It's only like very narrow, word for word, this is what is supposed to be. It's about the law, not the heart of the law. And Jesus fights that all the time. You may remember there was a time where Jesus was in the synagogue and a, on the Sabbath and a lady comes in who's bent over at the back and is having trouble walking and she comes in on the Sabbath and Jesus heals her on the Sabbath and it causes this great big uproar within the synagogue about this dude just healed someone on the Sabbath and you are not supposed to heal someone on the Sabbath. And I oftentimes think like, yeah, go Jesus. But the reality is, most of the time, I'm on their side. Because that lady could have come on Friday. She didn't have to come on the Sabbath. She had been that way for a really long time. She could have planned ahead and made sure she comes on the day after the Sabbath and not try to get somebody to do something they're not supposed to do. What is wrong with her? I'm not alone in that. I work at this church, y'all. But Jesus says right after that, you've got it all twisted. You think that the rules are set up for the rules. You think that the Sabbath, that you are to serve the Sabbath, and that's not it. The Sabbath is to serve you. These rules are in place to serve you. This stuff is to help your soul be in a good condition and good place so that you'll recognize when somebody comes in and they need help, you can help them. And it doesn't matter, you can help them. Because the poor you have with you always. So the real enemy of Jesus, at least in the book of Mark, are the biblical literalists. 
of his time. And his friends had fallen into that. They had missed the point that the kingdom was something different than they had always been told. They couldn't get it because they were so wrapped up in this idea about the law and the stories that they had been told. They couldn't see the other side of the coin. And Jesus is always, always, always about the other side of the coin. Even to us, even when we think we have it figured out, the other side of the coin, there's more truth. And when you get that side figured out, flip it over again because there's more truth there. It's never ending. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He quotes a prophecy. But then I... But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter, you know, Peter is the exception to every rule. Peter tries to make himself be exceptional every single time. And Peter says, even though they're all going to become deserters, like, look, Jesus, I believe you. I believe you. I'm all in for you. And, And I get it. Those dudes, like, for sure, for sure they're going to desert you. But not me. They will, and I know, I know, we're on the same page, right? Jesus, like, you get it, I get it. We're, you're not really talking about me. They will, but not me. And Jesus says, Pete, listen. Truly, listen. This day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, before the sun even comes up. Anybody ever live close to a rooster? Those things start crowing before the sun comes up. That's a falsity. That's a false black lie from Satan that, crow, that they crow with the sun coming up. They crow before it comes up. We had this transsexual hen one time that we thought was a hen, turns out was a rooster. And that guy started crowing, and we were like, that's a weird chicken. Turns out it was a rooster. But... That thing crowed before the sun would come up. And Jesus says, Peter, before the cock crows even twice, before the sun is all the way up this night, you're going to betray me three times. And Peter, vehemently, like passionately, that's one thing we know about Peter, is that guy was passionate. He says, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same thing. They followed Peter's lead. Do you remember when Jesus said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me? Anybody ever heard that saying? That's one of the ways Jesus calls us. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. What Peter and his friends did was deny Jesus, accept themselves, and I'm not picking up the cross. Because if they had denied themselves, they would have never denied Jesus, and they would have picked up their crosses and been executed with him. As followers of Jesus, he says to us, deny yourself. It is not about you. You want to park in the lower parking lot, it's not about you. It's about people who can't get to the doors as easily. It's about making sure that people who are guests in this place feel welcome and like we have prepared for them. Deny yourself. 
pick up your cross and follow me. That's not much of a cross to park at the top of the hill like Stuart asked us to do. This crowd, Camino. Camino. Preach it. <laughs> you interrupted my sermon, man. That's it. This meal, this time, that these 12 guys thought was going to be one way, ended up being a different way. Wes Boots was at our house the other night, and he and I were talking, and he reminded me that Soren Kierkegaard said that life is lived forward but understood looking backward. These guys were living their life going forward, and they were thinking they were understanding, and they were thinking they were getting together with their rabbi, this guy that they loved, that they had experienced things with, and they couldn't wait to eat this meal with him, because at some point in the meal, he's going to have a homily, a short sermon, where he explains everything, like, we eat these bitter herbs because of this thing, and we eat this because of that thing, and we drink this stuff because of this thing, and the whole history of it. And he was going to do it in a way that was, like, deep, and they like it would do something for their souls. You know what I'm talking about. You've heard those preachers before. And, and they just couldn't wait to be with him. And then he does something completely different. He starts talking about death and how death is going to, like, he's going to be raised up and, like, this bread is my body. Like, we can't touch a dead body, Jesus. We're Jewish. Like, and if we do, like, there are all these ritual things we've got to do and drink this blood. What are you talking about? Like, that's unclean. Like, and out of that, this beautiful thing is going to happen. He turns everything upside down. And in the moment, they thought it was the worst Passover meal ever. And they were probably frustrated with Jesus, as we would be. It seemed disorganized. What well, seemed like it was going to be awesome and organized and covert and secretive. Everybody likes that stuff. Ended up being not good. You ever been to that meeting? Or on that date? Or to that person's house. Like that's a thing that happens. But fortunately, our God is the God of making all things new. So what seemed bad and terrible, seemed like death, ends up being resurrection and hopeful. And what seems like darkness ends up being light. And what seems like it can't be forgiven is forgiven. That's our God. That's the story that Jesus is trying to tell and live and show, is that that's who we are. We're people like that. We're those people. We're the people who recognize this person feels hopeless. We're going to show them where some hope is. Not tell them, but show them. This person seems like there's no joy in them. We're going to help them find joy, not just tell them that they can find it. We're going to walk with them and help them find it. We're the people who are going to go to someone's house for a meal and realize, like, this isn't the greatest thing ever, but we're going to recognize afterwards that somehow a relationship was formed that is now different than it ever was before, and that's always good. And because we're expecting great things, and I want us as a Jesus community to organize our lives in a way in 2018 that we can do life together in a different way, I want to say this. In 2018, let's organize our lives in a way that we meet together regularly and get involved in one another's lives and make a difference for one another and change things for ourselves and for our friends and for this community. Amen. And it's not just enough for me to say that. Like, that would be ridiculous for me to say that and then not offer an opportunity and tell you how. So here's what I want us to do. Starting today, 
Start praying for ways that you can get involved in this church relationally. Not just showing up and serving and doing a few things, but to get involved in this church relationally. I don't care how much you travel. I don't care how much you stay at home. There are ways to get deeper involved, and we're going to try to make it easier for you. So starting in February, we're going to launch what we're calling growth groups. And growth groups are groups that do a few things. And we're going to do a few things well, and we're going to do a lot of things poorly, and some things we're not even going to try to do. But here's what's going to happen in growth groups that we're going to do well. We're going to gather in people's homes. Because when you walk into somebody's house, you're walking into their safe, sacred place. And it changes things. So we're going to meet in people's homes. And if you're in a growth group and you don't think your group will fit in your home or you're just not comfortable having people come to your home, that's okay because going to someone else's house is, a, is a, an intimate thing also. And so we're going to meet in people's homes. We're going to share a meal together. And if you come to my house, I'll feed you first. Not really. We're going to share a meal together, and we're going to check in with one another. Sometimes that check-in is going to happen around reading a scripture or a book together, or watching a video together. And sometimes it's just going to be sitting and saying, Hey, Greg, how is it with your soul? And Greg can say, bad. Or he can say, great. Or he can say, it's all right. And if he says bad, I'm going to say, like, Hey, what can I do? How can I help? And I'm going to mean it. Like, physically, how can I help? That's what it's going to be. And they're going to meet throughout the week at various times in the day, and at various places around the city. And they're going to grow, and they're going to start new groups out of their groups. That's it. We're going to call it growth groups in February. And guess what? There have been a group of us that have been meeting for about two months together now, practicing what that might look like. And it's awesome. It is awesome. Here's what those growth groups are not going to do. They're not going to let you or make you become best friends with someone. It's not a guarantee that you're going to find your new best friend from church in your growth group. But it is a guarantee that it's going to open a door for that possibility. In your growth group, chances are, like, in those moments, if you just get together once a week, you're probably not going to find your new best friend. But if you decide, hey, I'm going to get together with this person for coffee outside, or we're going to go hiking together, or we're going to go grab a beer together, or we're going to have a cookout at our house and invite that couple over there's a good chance that you start becoming deeper in relationship with them. And that's an expectation. That's us expecting great things. But here's the thing. It's risky. It's not easy. It may end up being more like this meeting where you look back on it and you say, like, I really didn't want to go over there tonight, but I'm sure glad I did. Or it may be like, "Ah, man, I did not want to have to clean the house tonight and get ready for all those people to come over, but I'm glad we did that because that was great. Or you may walk away being like, that was a waste of time. And that's okay too because next week it won't be. But we expect great things because we are shown in Scripture that we can expect great things. We worship a God of life and resurrection.
We worship a God that loves us in death as much as in resurrection. And we worship a God that makes all things.